For five or six hours I was engaged alternately in reading the scriptures and attempting to pray. But the longer I continued these exercises, the harder did my heart become, and the more wretched my feelings, until at length I was exhausted and discouraged, and began to despair of help, and was about returning from my chosen retirement in gloomy despondence, when it occurred to me with peculiar force that if I found I could do nothing to help myself, yet I might call upon God for mercy. Accordingly, I fell down before him and said little more than is contained in the publican's prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But this I uttered with a deep and filling conviction of my utter helplessness. The words were scarcely out of my mouth when God was pleased to give me such a manifestation of his love in the plan of redemption through Christ, is filled me with wonder, love, and joy. Christ did indeed appear to me as altogether lovely, and I was enabled to view him as my Savior, and to see that his sufferings were endured for me. At no time before I had the full assurance of being in the favor of God, but now every doubt of this was dissipated. I could say for the first time with unwavering confidence, my beloved is mine, and I am his. And this assurance of God's favor arose not from any suggestion or impulse directly made to my mind, but from the clear view that Christ as a Savior was freely offered, and from a conscious assurance that I did truly accept the offer. I now opened my Bible and began to read at the 18th chapter of John and onward. Every word and sentiment appeared glorious, I seemed to be reading a book which was perfectly new, and truly the sacred pages seemed to be illuminated with celestial light, and I rejoiced to think that the sacred scriptures would always be read in the same manner. How little did I know of the spiritual warfare. After my feelings had a little subsided, but while the glorious truths of the gospel were still in full view, I made a formal and solemn dedication of myself to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and having writing materials with me, I wrote down the substance of this covenant and subscribed it with my hand. I now believed assuredly that I was reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. But being naturally inclined to be suspicious of myself, I resolved to make the Holy Scriptures a test of the genuineness of my exercises and to leave the final determination to the fruits produced. As our Lord says, by their fruits ye shall know them. I remembered that it was written that faith works by love and purifies the heart. I hoped, therefore, that I should now be delivered from those evils of the heart with which I had been lately so much affected. But alas, in a few days I found that the old man was not dead, but had power to struggle in a fearful manner. I must acknowledge, therefore, that after a few weeks I was in much the same spiritual condition in which I was before this remarkable manifestation. End quote. Here the narration breaks off abruptly. It may be remarked in the first place on this narrative that sometimes persons are brought along very gradually in their acquisition of the knowledge of the truth. One discovery is made at one time, and another truth is revealed at another time, and between these steps there may be a long interval. It may again be remarked that commonly before a person comes to the knowledge of a truth, the need of information is sensibly felt and the appropriate means of communicating it are provided. A book, a sermon, a casual conversation may be intimately connected with our salvation. Those who commence a religious life, though they may appear sincere, should always be urged to go forward, 
There is much before them which they have not yet experienced. If they are not yet in the right way, they may arrive at it. In looking over the various exercises here detailed, I am utterly at a loss to say when the work of grace commence. Perhaps scarcely any two persons, taken at random, would agree in this point. For while some would scarcely admit that there was any exercising of saving faith until the last manifestation here described, others would be for carrying it back to the very beginning of the exercised soul's serious attention to religion. However this matter may be decided, one thing I think is evident, that it is a great practical error to suppose that nothing connected essentially with the sinner's conversion is experienced or done until the moment of his converse, conversion. He may have to unlearn many erroneous opinions taken up through prejudice or inclination. He must learn the truth of the Christian religion, if unhappily he has adopted skeptical notions. He must learn to know what the Bible teaches as to man's duty and the true method of salvation. God's methods of bringing His chosen into the paths of truth and holiness are often full of wonder. They are, at every step, led in a way which they knew not. How remarkable true it is as it relates to conviction of sin. When the sinner is most convinced, he thinks he has no conviction at all. And in regard to conversion, what a different thing does it turn out to be in experience from what it was conceived to be beforehand. Whilst the anxious soul was expecting something miraculous or entirely out of the way, he experiences a new train of thought, new and pleasing views of truth, with corresponding emotions, by which the mind is so occupied that it has no time nor inclination to scrutinize the nature or cause of these pleasing exercises. He believes and hopes without asking himself whether these are the views and feelings of a renewed soul. Afterwards, he can look back and see that faith was exercised in these very acts, and that the peace which he then enjoyed was a peace of reconciliation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But when the love of God is shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Ghost, as described in the last part of this narrative, the distressed soul is made sensible at once of its happy state and is made to rejoice in the smiles of the divine favor. Then he can no more doubt that God is reconciled, and has lifted upon him the light of his countenance, than that the sun is shining at midday. All Christians, however, are not favored with these bright discoveries. Some always walk in a degree of darkness, or at best in a mere crepuscular light, yet they fear the Lord and obey the voice of his servants. I have known instances of some persons changing their opinion of the time of their own conversion several times, and fixing it at different periods of their experience, as their sentiments became more correct and mature. And those converts who shine forth more brightly at first are not always they who appear best after the lapse of years. The following narrative of the experience of Sir Richard Hill, written by himself, is found in his biography by Edwin Sidney, and has been inserted in the Christian Observer of London for September 1839. We make no apology for its length, as we are confident that all who have a taste for this kind of reading will be gratified to have the whole of this interesting account without curtailment. Quote, it would not be an easy matter for me to ascertain the time when the first dawnings of divine light began to break in upon my soul. But I remember particularly that when I was about eight or nine years of age, being then at a neighboring school, and repeating the catechism one Sunday evening with some other boys to the master, I found my heart sweetly drawn up to heavenly objects, 
and had such a taste of the love of God as made everything else appear insipid and contemptible. This was but a transitory glimpse of the heavenly gift, and I was no sooner withdrawn from the rest of my school fellows than my religious impressions vanished, and I returned to folly with the same eagerness as before. But God did not leave me to myself. I had frequent checks of conscience, and the thoughts of death sometimes came forcibly into my mind. I remained about two years at the school before mentioned, after which I was removed to Westminster, where my convictions still pursued me, and forced me to several superficial repentances and resolutions, but these being all made in my own strength soon came to nothing. When I had been about four or five years at Westminster, I was to be confirmed with several more of my school fellows. I looked upon this as going into a new state, and therefore made the most solemn resolutions of becoming a new creature. But alas, my happiness and conversion were far from beginning here, as I had fondly imagined. The adversary, now finding that he was not likely to make me continue any longer in a state of practical wickedness by his former stratagems, began to attack me on another side, namely by suggesting horrible doubts concerning the very fundamentals of all religion as a being of a god, the immortality of the soul, and the divine origin of the scriptures. I endeavored to reason myself into the belief of these truths, but all in vain. However, I thought I might easily get some book that should convince me of their certainty. Accordingly, I borrowed Dr. Beveridge's private thoughts of a clergyman's widow with whom I boarded, she having first read to me a few pages in that excellent work. It was, to the best of my remembrance, while she was reading, that such glorious instantaneous light and comfort were diffused over my soul as no tongue can express. The love of God was shed abroad in my heart, and I rejoiced with joy unspeakable and full of glory. However, these comforts, I think, did not last about half an hour at most, but went off by degrees, when the same doubt succeeded upon which I again had recourse to Bishop's Beveridge's thoughts or to conversation on the subject of religion, and for several times as I did this I experienced the same manifestations of divine love, which were sometimes of longer, sometimes of shorter duration. At length I began to be tired of the state of uncertainty, especially as the comforts I had before felt began to be few and faint. Add to this the bad example of my schoolfellows and the despair I began to be in of obtaining satisfaction of the truth of what is called natural as well as revealed religion, contributed not a little to make me lay aside my inquiries and have fallen to many sins that youth and strong passions prompted me to, and this I did with the more eagerness as I was desirous of laying hold of every opportunity of turning my thoughts from within myself. I believe I might now be about eighteen years of age when, having gone through the school at Westminster, I was entered at Magdalen College, Oxford, where I continued between four and five years, after which I went abroad for about two years more, returning to England in 1757, being then about the age of twenty-three or twenty-four. During my residence at Oxford, and in foreign parts, notwithstanding all the wretched pains I took to lull conscience asleep, 
Still my convictions pursued me. Yea, the more I endeavored to put from me the thoughts of my soul by drinking deeper draughts of iniquity, the more strongly did the insulted spirit plead with me. And often in the very act of sin would so embitter my carnal gratifications and strike me with such deep remorse that, oh, horrid to think, I have even been ready to murmur because God would not let me alone nor suffer me to sin with the same relentless satisfaction which I observed in my companions. But he that has loved me with an everlasting love had all these wild thoughts of mercy towards me and would not take his loving kindness utterly away from me. He therefore waited that he might be gracious unto me and followed me with such loud and constant convictions as often brought me upon my knees, and sometimes forced me to break off my sins for a month or a quarter of a year together. For though I still remain full of doubts as to the truth of religion, yet I thought that, if there was a God in a future state, and if Jesus Christ was indeed the true Messiah, and the author of eternal salvation to those who obey Him, I could by no means be saved in the state I was in. And that, being uncertain whether these things were so or not, it was the highest infatuation to leave the eternal happiness or misery of my soul at a peradventure, especially as I could be no loser by admitting the truths of religion and living under their influence. Whereas were I to continue in sin under the supposition of their being false, I might find myself fatally mistaken when it would be too late to recant or retrieve my error. But, notwithstanding I came to this conclusion and plainly saw its reasonableness, yet were my religious fits of no long continuance, but every temptation that offered itself hurried me impetuously away, and I became seven times more the child of hell than before. Nevertheless, every new fall increased my anguish of spirit, and set me upon praying and resolving, insomuch that I frequently bound myself under the most solemn imprecations. But alas! Alas, I was all this while as ignorant of my own weakness as of him on whom my strength was laid, and therefore no wonder all my attempts to make myself holy were attended with no better success than if I had tried to wash the Ethiopian white, and answered no other end than to distress my soul a thousand times more than if I had never made such solemn vows. For all this while I had no other notion of religion than that it consisted in something which I was to do in order to make God's amends for my past sins, and to please Him for the time to come, in consideration of which I should escape hell and be entitled to everlasting life. In this manner I went on vowing and breaking my vows, sinning and repenting, till my most merciful God and Savior seeing that all his gracious calls would not overrule the horrible perverseness of my will, instead of giving me up, as in just judgment he might have done, or pronouncing against me that dreadful sentence, cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? I say instead of this, he began to deal with me by a far more violent method than he had hitherto done, filling my soul with the most unimaginable terrors, insomuch that I roared for the very disquietness of my heart. The arrows of the Almighty stuck fast in me, the poison whereof drank up my spirits, and the pains of hell got hold upon me. From this time, which is about October 1757, I may say that sin received its mortal blow, I mean its reigning power, for God knows a body of sin is yet far from being done away, 
and I set myself to work with all the earnestness of a poor perishing mariner, whose every moment in expectation of shipwreck, I fasted, prayed, and meditated. I read the scriptures, communicated, and gave much alms. But these things could bring no peace to my soul. On the contrary, I now saw what I never had seen before, that all my works were mixed with sin and imperfection. Besides this, Satan furiously assaulted me with suggestions that I had committed the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost and had let my day of grace slip, that therefore my prayers were cast out by God and were an abomination to Him, and that it was too late to think of mercy when it was the time of judgment. It is beyond the power of conception, much more of expression, to form an idea of the dreadful agonies my poor soul was now in. What to do or to whom to have recourse I knew not, for alas I had no acquaintance with anybody who seemed to have the least experience in such cases. However, those about me showed the greatest concern for my situation and offered their remedies for my relief, such as company, physique, exercise, and so on, which in order to oblige them I complied with. But my disorder, not being bodily but spiritual, was not to be removed by these carnal quackeries, as they were soon convinced. I recollected, however, that once, if not oftener, the Reverend John Fletcher, then tutor to two neighboring young gentlemen, but since vicar of Madeley and Shropshire, had in my hearing been spoken of in a very disrespectful manner, for things which seemed to me to savor of a truly Christian spirit. I therefore determined to make my case known to him, and accordingly wrote him a letter, without mentioning my name, giving him some account of my situation, and begging him for God's sake, if he had a word of comfort to offer to my poor distressed despairing soul, to meet me that very night at an inn in Salop, in which place I then was. Though Mr. Fletcher had four or five miles to walk, yet he came punctually to the appointment and spoke to me in a very comfortable manner, giving me to understand that he had very different thoughts of my state from what I had myself. After our discourse, before he withdrew, he went to prayer with me, and among other petitions that he put up in my behalf, he prayed that I might not trust in my own righteousness, which was an expression that, though I did not ask him its import, I knew not well what to make of. After my conversion with Mr. Fletcher, I was rather easier, but this decrease of my terrors was but for a few days' duration, for though I allowed that the promises and comforts he would have me apply to myself belonged to the generality of sinners, yet I thought they were not intended for me, who had been so dreadful a backslider, and who, by letting my day of grace slip, had sinned beyond the reach of mercy." Besides, I concluded that they could be made effectual to none but such as had faith to apply them, whereas I had no faith. Consequently, they could avail me nothing. I therefore wrote again to Mr. Fletcher, telling him, as nearly as I can remember, that however others might take comfort from the Scripture promises, I fear none of them belonged to me, who had crucified the Son of God afresh, and sinned willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth. I told him also that I found my heart to be exceeding hard and wicked, and that is all my duties proceeded from a slavish dread of punishment, and not from the principles of faith and love, and were withal so very defective, I thought it was impossible God should ever accept them. In answer to this, the kind and sympathizing Mr. Fletcher immediately wrote me a sweet and comfortable letter, 
telling me that the perusal of the account I had given him had caused him to shed tears of joy to see what great things the Lord had done for my soul in convincing me experimentally of the insufficiency of all my own doings to justify me before God and of the necessity of a saving faith in the blood of Jesus. He also sent me the life and death of Mr. Halliburton, professor of divinity in the University of St. Andrews, which book I read with the greatest eagerness is the accounts of Mr. Halliburton therein gives of himself seemed in a very particular manner to tally with my own experience. I therefore thought that what had been might be that the same God who had showed himself so powerfully on the behalf of Mr. Halliburton and delivered him out of all his troubles was able to do the same for me. You will wonder how I could hold out under all these pressures the half of which, I might say, has not been told. And indeed it was impossible I could have held out, had it not been that at those very times when I thought all was over with me, there would now and then dart in upon me some comfortable glimmering of hope which kept me utterly from fainting. In this situation I continued from September 1757 to January 1758, when the Vinerian professor of Oxford, being to read a course of lectures upon the common law, I resolved to set out for that place, not through any desire I had to attend the lectures, for I had no heart for any such thing, but because I knew I should have chambers to myself in college, and thereby have an opportunity of being much alone, and of giving way to those thoughts with which my heart was big, as also of seeking the Lord with greater diligence, as peradventure I might find Him. Accordingly, when I arrived at the university, Though to save appearances I dragged my body to several of the lectures, yet my poor heavy-laden soul engrossed all my attention, and so sharp was the spiritual anguish I labored under, that I scarcely saw a beggar in the streets, but I envied his happiness, and would most gladly have changed situations with him, had it been in my power. Oh, thought I, these happy souls have yet an offer of mercy, and a door of hope open to them, but it is not so with me. I have rejected God so long that now God has rejected me as He did Saul. My day of grace is past, irrevocably past, and I have forever shut myself out of all the promises. All this while, one thing that greatly astonished me was to see the world about me so careless and unconcerned, especially many that were twice my age amongst the doctors of divinity and fellows of the college. Surely, thought I, these people must be infatuated indeed thus to mind earthly things and to follow the lust of the flesh when an eternity of happiness or misery is before them, when they know not how short a time they have to live, and their everlasting state depends on the present moment. It was now the season of Lent, the first or second Sunday in which the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is always administered in Magdalene College Chapel. I therefore besought the Lord with strong cryings that He would vouchsafe me some token for good, some sense of His love towards me, and willingness to be reconciled to me, that I might wait upon Him at His table without distraction, and partake of those blessings which that ordinance is instituted to convey to the souls of true believers. 
And oh, forever and forever, blessed be His holy name. He did not reject the prayer of the poor destitute. He heard me what time the storm fell upon me. And I make no doubt, but had heard, and in His purpose at least answered me from the first day He inclined my heart to understand and to seek after Him. But He knew better than I did myself when it was meet to speak peace to my soul. And therefore waited that he might be gracious unto me, first in order to convince me the more deeply of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, and of the desert thereof, secondly to show me more experimentally my own weakness, and the insufficiency of any righteousness of my own to recommend me to his favor, thirdly to make me prize more highly, and hunger and thirst more earnestly for Jesus Christ and the salvation that is in him." These ends being in some measure answered, on Saturday, February 18th, to the best of my remembrance, the night before the sacrament, it pleased the Lord, after having given me a few days before some taste of His love, first to bring me into a composed frame of spirit, and then to convey such a thorough sense of His pardoning grace and mercy to my poor soul, that I, who was but just before trembling upon the brink of despair, did now rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The love of God was shed abroad in my heart through the Holy Ghost that was given unto me, even that perfect love which casteth out fear. And the Spirit itself bore witness with my spirit that I was a child of God. For some time after these sensible manifestations of God's love were withdrawn, my mind was composed and my hope lively, but I had still at season secret misgivings and many doubts as to the reality of my conversion, which put me seriously to examine my state, whether the scripture marks of a work of grace were really to be found in me or not. And in these examinations I had great help from those excellent books, William Guthrie's Trial of a Saving Interest in Christ, and Anthony Palmer's Gospel New Creature. Add to this that being now in London, I had there the opportunity of hearing that faithful minister of Christ, the Reverend William Romaine, whose discourses were so exactly descriptive of and adapted to my own experience that they afforded me a good confirmation that I was indeed passed from death unto life and from the power of Satan unto God. During my stay in London, it pleased God to make me acquainted with many of his people, to whom my heart was immediately knit with the closest affection. Yea, so great was my love to all those in whom I discerned the divine image of the Lord Jesus, that the yearnings of Joseph's heart towards his brethren will but very faintly express it. Be they who or what they would, high or low, rich or poor, ignorant or learned, it mattered not. If I had reason to believe they were born of God and made partakers of a divine nature, they were equally dear to me. My heart was open to receive them without reserve, and I enjoyed the sweetest fellowship and communion with them, whilst all other company was insipid and irksome. For about two years after this, I was in a good measure relieved from those piercing terrors and that deep distress with which I was before overwhelmed. This, you will say, was living upon frames and experiences more than upon the exceeding great and precious promises made to returning sinners in Christ Jesus. It is true it was so. And of this God soon convinced me, for I now begin to doubt whether these great comforts I had set so high a value upon might not be all delusion, or proceed from the workings of my own spirit. And if so, my case was just as bad as ever.
My day of grace might still be past, and nothing yet remained for me but a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. This was in April 1759, soon after my return from London into Shropshire, where I had not been long before I wrote to Mr. Fletcher, giving him an account of my state. After this it pleased the Lord to remove my burden and to exchange these sharp terrors of the spirit of bondage for the sweet reviving comforts of the spirit of adoption, showing me the rich treasures of gospel promises, and that they, and not my own frames, were to be the ground of my hope and my stay in every time of need. Since this time, I may say with Bishop Cooper that my soul has never experienced a like extremity of terror, and though I have had many ups and downs, many grievous temptations and sharp conflicts, much aridity of soul, deadness, and strong corruptions to fight against, yet I have always found the Lord to be a very present help in trouble. His grace has been sufficient for me in every hour of need, and I doubt not but all his dealings with me, however thwarting to my own ideas of what was fit and meet for me, have some way or other been subservient to my spiritual interests, since his most sure promise is that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. Chapter 10 Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander Imperfect Sanctification in the Spiritual Warfare It may be difficult to account for the fact that when the power of God was as sufficient to make the sinner perfect in the new creation as to implant the principle of spiritual life, he should have left the work imperfect, and that this imperfection, according to our views of Scripture, and of the fact as made known by experience, should continue through the whole period of human life, to whatever extent it may be protracted. Some, indeed, seem to suppose that the remainders of sin in believers are seated in the body, and therefore, as long as this sinful body continues, this inbred corruption will manifest itself more or less. This opinion seems to have been imbibed at a very early period of the history of the church, and was probably derived from the Platonic philosophy, which considers matter to be the origin of evil. From this view of the seed of indwelling sin, men in all ages who entertain it have been led to lay great stress on fasting and other bodily austerities, by which the body was enfeebled and emaciated. But the principle assumed being false, all that is built upon it must be false likewise. The body, though infected with the pollution of sin, through its connection with the soul, is not and cannot be the source of iniquity. Mere matter, however curiously organized and animated, is, apart from the soul, no moral agent, and therefore not susceptible of moral qualities. Sin must have its origin and seed in the free rational soul, and the appetites and passions which have their seed in the body partake of the nature of sin by their excess and irregularity, and by their cravings often influence the will to choose that which is not good or is not the best. Still, however, the body is a great clog to the soul, and the appetites and passions which are seated in the body, being very urgent in their cravings for gratification, greatly disturb the exercises of piety, and sometimes prevail against the higher principles which by grace have been implanted. As the body is also subject to various diseases, these, on account of the close connection between the soul and body, 
mightily affect the mind and often create a great hindrance to devotion in the exercises of piety. Where two opposite principles exist in the same soul, there must be a perpetual conflict between them until the weaker dies. But as the old man, though crucified, never becomes extinct in this life, this warfare between the flesh and the spirit never ceases until death. As these opposite moral principles operate through the same natural faculties and affections, it is a matter of course that as the one gains strength, the other must be proportionately weakened. And experience teaches that the most effectual way to subdue the power of sin is to cherish and exercise the principle of holiness. But if the love of God grows cold or declines in vigor, then the motions of sin become more lively, and the stirring of inbred corruption is sensibly experienced. Just then, in the same proportion, will the principle of evil be diminished as the principle of grace is strengthened. Every victory over any particular lust weakens its power, and by a steady growth in grace such advantage is obtained over inbred sin that the advanced Christian maintains the mastery over it and is not subject to those violent struggles which were undergone when this warfare commenced. Young Christians, however, are often greatly deceived by the appearance of the death of sin when it only sleeps or deceitfully hides itself, waiting for a more favorable opportunity to exert itself anew. When such an one experiences, in some favored moment, the love of God shed abroad in his heart, sin appears to be dead, and those lusts which warred against the soul to be extinguished. But when these lively feelings have passed away, and carnal objects begin again to entice, the latent principle of iniquity shows itself. And often that Christian who had fondly hoped that the enemy was slain and the victory won, and in consequence ceased to watch and pray, is suddenly assailed and overcome by the deceitfulness of sin. Christians are more injured in this warfare by the insidious and secret influences of their enemies lulling them into the sleep of carnal security than by all their open and violent assaults. No duty is more necessary in maintaining this conflict in watchfulness. Unceasing vigilance is indispensable. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Lawful pursuits are more frequently a snare than those which are manifestly sinful. It is a duty to provide things honest in the sight of all men. But while this object is industriously pursued, the love of the world gradually gains ground. The possession of wealth is viewed as important. Eternal things are out of view, or viewed as at a great distance, and the impression from them is faint. Worldly entanglements and embarrassments are experienced. The spiritual life is weakened. A sickly state commences, and a sad declension ensues. Alas for the Christian now! Where is the burning zeal with which he commenced his course? Where now are the comforts of religion with which he was so entirely satisfied that the world was viewed as an empty bauble? Where now is the spirit of prayer which made this duty his delight? Where is his love of the Bible which drew him aside often from worldly business to peruse its sacred instructions? Oh, what a change! Reader, it is perhaps thy own case. Thou art the man who hath thus fallen and left thy first love. Repent therefore and do the first works, lest some heavy judgment fall upon thee. God holds a rod for his own children. And when the warnings and exhortations of the word and the secret whispers of the spirit are neglected, some painful providence is sent, some calamity which has so much natural connection with the sin as to indicate that it is intended as a chastisement for it. 
These strokes are often very cutting and severe, but they must be so to render them effectual. No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Our Heavenly Father does not afflict willingly, but for our own profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. The followers of Dr. Robert Hawker in England, who are ultra-Calvinists, entertain the opinion that the law in our members is not in the least affected or weakened by our regeneration or sanctification, but through life it remains the very same, in no way weakened in its strength by any progress in the divine life which a Christian may make. But this is contrary to the word of God which speaks of dying daily unto sin, of mortifying the deeds of the body, crucifying the flesh, and so on. The same opinion, or one near akin to it, was held by Mr. William Walker of Dublin, which he brings to view in his able address to the Wesleyan Methodists. His opinion, however, I think, was that there is no such thing as a progressive work of sanctification, which word properly means a consecration to God. In a former chapter, I mentioned the different views of different denominations of Christians respecting the nature of the soul's exercises in conversion. But this difference is far more considerable as it relates to the spiritual conflict and sanctification. It is far from the wish of the writer to give offense to any body of Christians, much less to provoke controversy. This is no proper field for controversy. In the midst of this militant state, there ought to be one peaceful ground where all true followers of Jesus might sit down together and compare their experiences of the loving kindness and faithful dealings of their Lord and Master. But surely it ought not to be offensive to any body of Christians simply to state what their views are in regard to experimental religion and how far they agree or differ from those of other Christians. If there be mistakes or erroneous views on any side, they should be considered and corrected. There has long been a difference of opinion respecting the true interpretation of the seventh chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. In regard to Paul's description of the spiritual conflict, whether he describes the exercises of a converted sinner whom he personates, or whether he does not rather express honestly the feelings of his own heart and describe the painful conflict between the powers of sin and holiness which was going on in his own bosom. The latter undoubtedly is the obvious meaning, for the Apostle speaks in the first person, and gives no notice of introducing a person of another character. And some of the expressions here employed are as strongly descriptive of a regenerate heart as any in the Bible. But who but a regenerate man can say, I delight in the law of God after the inward man? And the closing words show clearly enough that the Apostle was detailing the exercises of his own soul. For he gives thanks to God for giving him the victory in this severe conflict, but still intimates that the two irreconcilable principles continued according to their respective natures to operate within him. Quote, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Arminius began his career of departure from the commonly received opinions of the Reformed churches 
by writing a book and exposition of the seventh chapter of the Romans, and it is a remarkable coincidence that Faustus Sassinus in Poland was engaged at the same time in writing a book on the same subject and to support the same views. This subject is excellently treated in one of President Dickinson's letters, and more largely by Fraser on sanctification. The same subject is also treated accurately and judiciously by Dr. Charles Hodge in his commentary on the Epistle to the Romans. It is understood that the followers of John Wesley hold, in conformity with his recorded opinion, that sanctification is not a gradual and progressive work, which remains imperfect and the best in this life, but that, like regeneration, it is instantaneous, and that the result is a complete deliverance from indwelling sin, so that from that moment believers are perfectly holy and sin no more, unless they fall from this high state of grace in thought, word, or deed. Here, then, there can be no similarity between the religious experience of an Armenian who has attained sanctification and a Calvinist who is seeking to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one is conscious of no sin, inward or outward, of nature or of act, and must have perpetual joy, a heaven on earth while the other is groaning under a deep sense of inherent depravity which works powerfully against his will and continually interrupts and retards his progress. His frequent language is, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Here indeed we have a wide difference in the religious experience of professing Christians and it must be acknowledged that if the experience of the Armenian is in accordance with the word of God, he has greatly the advantage over the contrite, broken-hearted penitent, whose complaints are so great that they often cause him to wet his couch with tears. How to reconcile these widely different views of our condition as sanctified sinners I know not. There must be a grand mistake somewhere, and I sincerely pray to God that if my views on this subject are erroneous, that they may be corrected. The Christian is a soldier and must expect to encounter enemies and to engage in many a severe conflict. The young convert may well be likened to a raw recruit just enlisted. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.